A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join me today. If you're a longtime listener, I thank you for being part of my audience. If you're a new listener, thanks for giving me a chance. I'll do my best not to scare you off within the next 10 minutes or so. I do want to tell you that our program is brought to you each weekday at this time by fantastic sponsors like Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as Monticello College and Pure Light and also HSL Ammo. Very, very happy for, for all of these sponsors for helping me do what I do. And you may be wondering to yourself, okay, what exactly do you do? Well, I sit down, crack open this microphone for roughly a couple hours each day. It, it actually edits down to a, to a little over 40 minutes, two episodes of about 40 minutes each that are then posted for podcast after they've streamed live across various networks and various radio stations. So that's what we've got going on here. But how I use this little platform, this is what I hope is bringing you you know, to our audience today, uh, just to see, is there something different here? Is there something that's worth my while? And ultimately, you're the one who has to answer that question. So I, you know, I hope you do find something worthwhile. But I'm going to tell you that I, I believe this is a time where we are absolutely facing some of the biggest challenges that, uh, that we're ever going to see in our lifetimes. And I don't mean that to sound scary or ominous. Oh, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, riding up and down the street here. More along the lines of there are a lot of different complications that were set in motion, you know, generations ago that are coming to a crescendo right now. And it's part of a historical cycle. If, you're, if you've ever heard of the fourth turning by historians Strauss and Howe, this is a remarkable book in describing a, a kind of uh, it's, it's almost a natural cycle that societies go through, likening, likening it to the seasons. Well, we're in the we're in the tough part of the year. This is like the biggest winter storm ever. And we've been through this kind of thing before. The interesting thing is the outcome is never really determined. It kind of depends on the the character of the people. It depends on what it is that that, uh, motivates them. And in some cases, it's been a very good thing. For instance, you know, you look back at the founding of this nation, the constitutional period that came out of a very huge time of uncertainty and everything was different. Once the dust settled from that that crisis, same thing with uh, what we often call the Civil War here in America, the war between the states, the, the way that things aligned following that conflict and following Reconstruction, everything was different. World War II and the Great Depression, same kind of thing. Hopefully you're getting you know the picture. The bottom line is there are very good times, which could be likened to springtime. There's summertime where things are good, but they're starting to unravel a little bit. There comes fall where there's a very clear unraveling, a breakdown in confidence in many of our institutions. Take a look around us today. Tell me you don't see that. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. And, and for a lot of people, that can be a scary thing because it feels very unpredictable. And you know what? In some ways, it is. <laughs> it is unpredictable. And so we've got to 
we got to make sure that uh, that we're doing our part to be the best people that we can be. And, and ultimately, the information I share with you is not to scare you. It's not to make you angry. It's not even to make you absolutely certain of who or what you're supposed to be against. See, that's easy. Every virtue signaling person out there is broadly, you know, broadcasting to the world and just loudly telling us this is who I'm against. This is what I'm against. And it's usually something that's very safe to be against. I mean, like for somebody to stand up today and say, I am against slavery. Wow, that is that is so brave because it's not like that. That problem was solved by another people in another time when there actually was slavery. So, you know, for them to take a stand against that today when nobody (laughs) supports it. You see what I'm saying? It's that's an easy thing to do. And unfortunately, it's extending to a lot of different periods of our lives. Um, You know, Dr. Seuss being the latest example of, you know, we are so woke and so inclusive that uh, we are against anything that came before us, which makes it tough because you never really know. Okay, what's what's going to be under attack next? And the problem is a lot of people have been trained to see this as, well, this is a political problem. So therefore, we have to look for a political solution. I'm not so sure that is the case, but I'll tell you, in, in, in all honesty, I think every one of us has a role to play. I think that uh, in times, especially trying times like this, I think we each have some very significant role to play. And I don't mean like on the global stage, you're going to step up and address the UN and change the course of human history. What I mean is with those difficult times, I think an opportunity is handed to us to become the best version, the most refined version of ourselves that we can. And it's going to look different from person to person. Some people will do things that are right out there, you know, in the open. Some people will do things that are very quietly done, but still helpful, you know, of a constructive nature. And I'm not just talking about virtue signaling. Well, this is what I'm against. And, you know, this is who I'm against. I'm talking about people who actually live their lives standing for something. And if you want to be that kind of person, and and, and I have to believe in my heart, you would not be listening to this program right now. If at some level you didn't at least question, is there something more I should be doing? And my answer to you is yes, (laughs) there is. I can't tell you what it is. I think it's unique to every one of us. And for some people, it may seem like, well, it's, you know, what does it matter if, if it never makes the newspapers? And I can't tell you why. But I can only assure you, it does matter. And, and I'm not suggesting everybody, everybody should absolutely turn their backs on politics. I personally have become a political agnostic. I don't believe politics adds that much value or, for that matter, that I can, can spend that much of my um, limited moral energy on political things. Now, some people are actually very good at this. In fact, some people, their personal excellence actually lends itself to political solutions. But my point is there are so many other areas of our lives. You look at the other institutions that make up a healthy society outside of government. You have things like family, church, community, business, academia, and media. I've only listed seven total. That's also including government. But when all of those different institutions are working in their own realm and and, and having influence on society, I don't know. There's a kind of balance. People are able to be persuaded of ideas. They're, they're free to make choices more on their own. 
because the only one of those institutions that claims the, the legitimacy to use force, to use violence, to make you do what it wants you to do, is government. Everybody else has to rely on persuasion. And in those different areas, think about that. In family, do you not think that your influence could make a huge difference? I think sometimes this may be the most important one, but we've even outsourced a good portion of that, you know, to the state. How can you help us? What Can you send us some checks? Can you take care of my kids, watch them, maybe teach them something during the day? It's actually been one of the bigger complaints I've heard about, you know, the fact that the kids haven't been actually in school in some of the various uh, school districts across the country. Parents are being denied their government-subsidized daycare, which is more or less how they treat school. Sorry, going, I'm going down a, a, a different trail there and on a tangent. I don't want to go on. But even look, within academia, there are people who are truly excellent educators and can have a very far-reaching impact on society. Same thing within the community. Same thing within business. Same thing within religion. Are you starting to get the picture? We don't see it as much within media, but I, but I think that's only because uh, media right now is in a pretty big state of flux. Traditional media, or what we would call mass media, mainstream media, has definitely thrown its lot, or at least cast its lot, to say, well, look, we're, we're with the ones who are in power. And so that's pretty much what they can be counted on to uphold. Whatever narrative those in power say is most important. And, I'm, you know, come on, there's evidence of this. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about this coming up here in a few moments. But the bottom line is you have to be excellent as a person in whatever, whatever you feel called as your, you know, personal sense of mission. I'm offering this to you only um, from the standpoint of if, if you've been feeling helpless, feeling like, well, there's really nothing I can do about a lot of the stuff going on around us. First of all, you're right. There is a lot that is out of our control. But the one thing that is within your control is to truly become who you were born to become. And it doesn't require this long, you know, arduous, um, you know, quest to go out there and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What it means is you just got to be willing to start making your feet move and moving in the direction of becoming whatever it is you're supposed to become. You have influence that you don't even realize. A sleeping giant, if you will. And it's time to wake that giant up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got some great stuff for you in today's show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's in show notes. These will be the show notes for March the 8th. Man, this month is going quickly. And I, I want to kind of follow up on something that I was talking about in the last segment, and that is, look, each one of us has influence that we really could be using you know, for, for productive means, for constructive means. That's going to be different things for different people. So, you know, when I say you have influence to use, I do not mean go run for office 
and then use that influence to make laws and, and rules and, you know, inspiring speeches to, to get people moving. No, I'm talking about just simply being willing to be a delivery system for the truth in whatever realm you happen to be operating. Um, there's a good example of how this works, by the way. And, and I love, uh, as, as I was reading this essay, it, uh, it brought to mind, there's a very clear homage to, to someone who influenced the author. Now, the author here is Donald J. Boudreaux. And this is an, an article written for the American Institute for Economic Research. But he talks about the influence that uh, Leonard E. Reed, who was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, had on him. And how that has subsequently uh, shaped him into the person that he is today. And specifically, what Donald Boudreau is talking about is how it's long past time to break silence on this tyranny. Now, he is talking about the lockdowns. He's talking about all the official um, freedom-stifling overreach that we saw transpire within the last year. But listen to this background story, and I think you'll hopefully catch a glimpse of, of what I'm trying to advocate for. We all can step up and be part of the solution in terms of just speakers of truth, um, examples, you know, a light, if you will, for people in the darkness. So Donald Boudreaux says from July 1997 till August 2001, he was president of the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, founded in 1946 by Leonard Reed. FEE joined with the American Institute for Economic Research, founded in 1933, during post-war America. The nourishment and spread of the ideas and ideals of classical liberalism. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, My admiration for, for Reed began 20 years before I became Fee's president. In 1977, as a college sophomore, I was introduced to his 1958 essay, I Pencil. The message was a thunderclap. To this day, Reed's classic essay remains one of my favorite of all things ever written. And by the way, if you haven't read this, it's so worth your while. It's a simple essay, but it explains a concept that's very difficult for people to understand. And that is how a free market economy, how specialization, how the division of labor allows us to enjoy simple luxuries like a pencil. Which when everybody combines their efforts to make that simple pencil happen, something you could pick up, you know, for a quarter or less at the, the time the article was written. Yet it would cost you a fortune if you were to try to gather and, and uh, form and use and prepare all the various materials that go into the manufacture of that pencil just to make one for yourself. It's much easier to do it on a huge scale globally, employing thousands upon thousands of people than it would be for you and I to go out there and get the basic stuff we need to make a pencil. Like I say, it's an essay that's so worth reading. Donald Boudreaux says, but taking over fees reigns from the retiring Hans Senholtz inspired him to dive more deeply into Leonard Reed's other voluminous, voluminous writings. One theme that runs through these works is humility. Reed never tired of reminding his readers that the only person anyone really has any control over is himself or herself. Leonard Reed could share his knowledge and wisdom with Sam and Sarah, but ultimately Sam and Sarah are each their own stewards. Sam and Sarah can each choose to be taught by Reed, but the learning that each of these persons ultimately takes from Reed is determined by them. Reed's deep understanding of individualism, his equally deep respect for individuals, prevented him from being judgmental. 
It was not Reed's place to judge what other individuals do with whatever learning they might take from him or from anyone else. As long as each of us respects the rights and space of each of the rest of us, we should be free to do, to use the title of what perhaps is Reed's most famous book, Anything That's Peaceful. So let's translate some of Reed's wisdom and humility into what we have experienced with COVID-19. And this is where I, I love Donald Boudreaux's essay here. He says, Reed's wisdom and humility were brought to my mind over the past few days by my own fear of the COVIDocracy. Hysteria over COVID-19 and government's correspondingly disproportionate response or reaction, rather, to this disease are the greatest threats to liberalism in my lifetime, by far. He says, the quickness with which so many people came to believe that avoiding COVID is worth any price was stunning. The apparent failure, still, of most of my fellow human beings to look for themselves at the actual data on COVID is distressing. Ordinary people's gullibility for mainstream experts peddling tyranny is appalling. The widespread embrace of the superstition that the science supplies an objective blueprint for how human choices should be made, he says, is terrifying. Donald Boudreaux says, if one year ago I was accurately informed of all that governments were to do from March 2020 through today, if one year ago I was shown in a truthful crystal ball the manner in which the media were to portray the disease and the many COVID restrictions, I would have predicted that nearly every classical liberal and libertarian would have raised his voice and her voice loudly, firmly, and unrelentingly against this tyranny and madness. And if asked in March 2020 how confident I was in my prediction, I would have answered with the exclamation point, 100%. And he says, my prediction would have been proven wrong. Very wrong. Of course, some notable liberals have been outspoken against the, from the start against COVID derangement syndrome and the COVIDocracy. In the United States, he says, surely the most outspoken are the stable of writers at AIER. And he says, I'm proud to be in their ranks. But he says, I'm shocked at how relatively quiet have been most prominent classical liberal and libertarian voices. And this shock prompted him last week to write at his blog, Cafe Hayek, a post titled Lockdown Tyranny. In that post, without naming names, he harshly decried the many classical liberals and libertarians whose silence over the past year so surprised and disappointed him. In that post, he says, I criticized people who did not do as I do. And he says that criticism, alas, is inappropriate. Also inappropriate was the smug sense of self-satisfaction that I felt by issuing the post. He says a notion much like this that ran through my mind. I hope that I shame those who should know better about this tyranny, but who, for unknown reasons, are not publicly raising their voices against it. But he says the one shamed was to be me. Not long after the post went live, he says, I received a telephone call from one of my dearest and most trusted friends who I will, who I will simply identify here as a friend and with the admittedly ugly pronoun she slash he. Okay. Friend is the person in the world whose economics, ethics, and polit politics, rather, in general, understanding of humanity most closely match my own. She and I agree on almost everything including fully on the vastly overhyped dangers of COVID and on the underappreciated menace of lockdowns. So when friend said to me in no uncertain terms, you're not going to like my saying this, but your blog post is inappropriate. I took notice. He says, my initial impulse was to resist, to tell friend that she doesn't understand what I've written. 
But friend and I are too close for me to have clung to that impulse for more than a nanosecond. If friend is, if friend is critical, he says, I'd better listen up. Friend explained, Don, you don't know why any particular individuals choose not to publicly speak out against the COVID panic and lockdowns. Those individuals might have good reasons. In fact, you should assume they do have good reasons. Maybe their employers would punish them. Maybe the backlash from their families would be too much to bear. Maybe many of them simply wish to keep in their specialized lanes and not write or talk about a matter on which they believe themselves to lack sufficient knowledge. And finally, friend concluded, maybe the persons you have in mind assess the risks of COVID and lockdowns differently than you do. He says, Don, you challenge, I'm sorry, Xi says, you can challenge their understanding of the facts, but you're wrong to pass ethical ethical judgment, rather, on these people for their failure to speak out. We'll continue after the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So in the uh, last segment, we were talking about how Donald J. Boudreaux had penned a a column, and I think probably a well-intentioned, and and I'm sure in his heart justified column, calling out some of his fellow um, classical liberals and libertarians who failed to speak up over the past year. And, and I have to admit, I've noticed the same kind of thing. There, there are some voices I've been like, really? I would have thought this person would have said more. I've also seen people who I never thought really, you know, had that fire burning within them who have stood up and made a stand, sometimes through speaking out, sometimes just simply through, you know, their, their actions, not wearing a mask and so forth. But in calling out these people, not by name, but just calling them out saying, where were you? Where were your voices? Donald Boudreaux was called on the carpet by a friend who said, look, until you can assess why these people did what they did, you know, on an individual basis, you have no right to challenge them for their failure to speak out. You can challenge their understanding of the facts, but if you're passing ethical judgment on them, that's not right. And he says, I thought about that as I sat there with the phone in my hand. And that's when Leonard Reed came to mind. And I I said, you're right. And then he wrote a follow-up post. This is what the follow-up post talked about. Humility and tolerance. He said, liberalism has many facets. Especially important among these is humility and the resulting tolerance. No matter how confident you are in your knowledge about some matter, there's always at least a slim chance that you're mistaken about that matter. And there's a slim chance that those with dissenting views are correct. To recognize this human reality is not to swear off pressing, even vigorously so, a case or against for or against some policy, if you have good reason to be confident in the knowledge that leads you to press that case. But he says you should resist leaping to the conclusion that those who disagree or who fail to express agreement are failing either ethically or intellectually. Giving others a capacious benefit of the doubt is a capacious rather benefit of the doubt is liberal, civilized, scientific. But he does say this tolerance should not be unlimited. Some policies are so clearly unethical as to justify confident, even harsh criticism of those who endorse these policies. To pick an obvious example, someone who calls for a reinstitution of chattel slavery is so far beyond the pale as to warrant harsh criticism and ridicule, but always peacefully. 
Even such a person retains the right to speak and write freely. And the closer the question comes to being one of the objective facts rather than one of subjective values, well, the more justified is confident criticism of the case made by someone who you believe to have his or her facts wrong. Also more justified, therefore, is confident criticism of whatever normative conclusion someone draws from his or her factually mistaken case. But, he says, over a very wide range, everyone deserves the benefit of the doubt, both of that person's interpretation of the facts and of the normative conclusions that he or she draws from that interpretation. And so here's the conclusion he comes to, and I think this is a very reasonable place to arrive. He says, I urge others to speak up, but I respect their right to remain silent. He says again, as I'm confident, I'm as confident as I can be that liberal civilization is now in grave peril, whether it's called safetyism or bioprotective statism as, or as David Hart has named it, hygiene socialism. The dangers are high and real of the sudden acceptance of the dual idea that the worst fate that can befall a person is to come into contact with a pathogen and that the state must protect us from this fate by imposing on us lockdowns, mask mandates, and other draconian restrictions. He says civilization as we know it, liberal, free, dynamic, prosperous civilization cannot survive what I fear will be repeated rounds of pathogen panic and the resulting covidocracy like tyranny. And so he says, I will continue with every sinew to publicly protest this madness, to play whatever role I can to persuade people to temper their excessive fear of COVID, to warn wherever I can of the many dangers of hygiene socialism, to urge in private my quiet friends to break their public silence. He says, I cannot deny that I'll feel much disappointment when I encounter Mr. or Mrs. Uh, so-and-so's refusal to add his or her voice to the protests against lockdowns. Never will I understand how a classical liberal or libertarian can behold what's going on today in the name of fighting COVID and not see misinformation and tyranny on such a scale as to demand from all of Liberty's friends forthright public opposition. But he says, my failure to understand isn't a sufficient warrant for me to criticize those who remain silent. I will respect their choices. Showing such respect is what Leonard Reed would have done. It's what my ever wise friend does and will always do. The liberalism destroyed by hygiene socialism need not have added to it the liberalism destroyed by liberals' own intolerance. Love this on a number of levels. And kudos to Donald J. Boudreaux uh, for, for writing this. I think there's a lesson in there for all of us, and I've, I've had to learn this too. You know, I, I've, I've really gone back and forth on, on the mask issue because on the one hand, I, I believe that there's, there's a time where a person just needs to be bold and in, in my case, I feel like there's a time where a person just needs to go without the mask. And that's what I did over this last weekend. Now, I know officially Utah's mask mandate isn't going to end for, well, for about another month. It won't end till April 10th. And to look around, you know, I, I just I haven't been a ton of places, but I did go to the grocery store. I went to a restaurant and went to a, you know, a shopping center, you know, the, the outlet malls. Um. I think I saw pretty close to, I would guess, 98, 99% compliance of people wearing masks. And and maybe they're just not as eager as, as I've been to see some of these things being rolled back, to see the um, to see the genie getting stuffed back into the bottle as far as, uh, look, the cases are dropping. It's, it's very likely 
that uh, that we're moving into a, a more um, healthy time of year when it's harder for the virus to survive. And uh, anyway, I'm happy to see this come. I'm happy to start seeing people's faces. And, and I have seen it on a very limited scale. But when I go out there and I don't have my mask on or when I show up at church and I don't have my mask on, I'm not there trying to create a political protest. I am trying to make a point of, look, I'm a person who's living his life with as little fear as possible. But I'm, how do you how do you do that without, uh, you know, proclaiming it to people? Because, see, in my mind, I'm just simply going about my business. I'm talking with family. I'm paying attention to the things that I see. But to some people, the fact that you're not wearing a mask, I might as well be waving a Confederate flag and wearing a MAGA hat and daring somebody to do something about it. <sighs> that's, that's the tough part. Some people will see it as a political statement when it really isn't intended to be one. And, and so you have to ask yourself, do I, do I take the chance of being misunderstood, misrepresented, confronted over my uh, nonconformity? I can't answer for you. I will tell you, for me personally, I'm at the point where I'm okay. If, if you want to confront me, confront me. I've already made my mind up that I'm not going to bring more anger into an already angry situation. Why else would you confront somebody, right? Are you confronting them out of real concern or is it just out of anger and d- disgust or disappointment? They're not doing what I, what I wanted them to do. So I won't return railing for railing, but... I'm at the point where, at least for, for me personally, yeah, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be eager to, to put the mask on. By the way, I will tell you one one little thing that I did learn. And this is this is just, you know, file this away for if it ever becomes useful. Um, I don't know if you've ever been into a business and uh, I don't know if they were shorthanded or just um, not paying real close attention. But uh, there was there was an eatery. Where, where I went uh, on Saturday, and we were having the hardest time getting anyone to, to recognize we were at the front of the restaurant waiting to be seated. And, of course, everybody in our party walked in, um, and, you know, the, everybody was masked up. So I'm just, I, I just said, well, let's, let's see what happens. I took off my mask, and, hey, within a couple of minutes, somebody was right there. Now, they didn't come and hound me about the mask, but I was like, this seems to be the only thing that gets, you know, gets a response out of people. I need service. You know, it's 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 like the old uh, joke about the the British guy who calls up the police and says, yes, I've got I've got lads breaking into my my storage shed or my my garden shed. Can you send someone around? And they're like, ah, well, uh, we'll get someone around when we're able to just, you know, hang on. And uh, he called a couple of times. Hey, they're still in my shed taking stuff. And the police. Well, we we're busy right now. We'll send someone around when when we've got to, got a chance to break away. And finally, the guy calls back and says, hey, uh, you can take your time now. I went ahead and shot them all. And of course, boom, now everybody shows up. The cops are everywhere. Well, they caught the burglars red handed. He hadn't shot them at all. But he simply said what he needed to say to, uh, you know, light a fire under people. Sadly, one of the ways that uh, you will get the attention at a less than attentive establishment these days, take off your mask or don't wear one in there in the first place. I don't know if that's the same thing as cutting to the head of the line. Yeah, there's a little bit of gray area. I'm going to have to probably think about that one. It's sorted out. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, included in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, I want you to check out the link to Paul Rosenberg's latest article. It's his latest essay on fallacies. And this, I, I don't know, you know, not everybody wants to go out and argue, you know, different points with people. But if you want to be an effective representative of the truth, if you want to be able to speak the truth, but more importantly, to recognize when someone is being less than truthful or less than complete in uh, their portrayal of the facts, Knowing basic logic, knowing the a basic understanding of the, the fallacies and the different rhetorical tricks that people can use to try to, you know, get you uh, off uh, off of uh, your point and onto the defensive. It's a really handy skill. And he talks in this essay about other attacks, um, including things like uh, uh, the open lie. He talks about uh, people who appeal to, well, it's the law, you know, as if that is the trump card. Anything that's legal should be permissible. Yes, yes, I'm sure the people who were looking for Anne Frank felt that way, too. Unfortunately, Anne Frank and her family were lawbreakers and the people hiding them, lawbreakers. But I think we're pretty clear on which ones were on the right side of history, aren't we? Uh, People who cry heresy. Anyway, it's phenomenal information. It's in the show notes at the com. Again, show notes for March 8th. Why is it so important to hone those, those skills and that thinking ability so that you can discern fact from fiction more readily? I think it's because right now we are having a terrible time getting good information from most of the big mass information platforms out there. I mean, look, the, the Internet, yes, you can find the truth, but there's there's a great deal of misinformation. Mass media, as I mentioned earlier, seems to have cast its lot with the, those who are in power. And so not surprisingly, much of whatever is reported to us through mass media sources seems to be pretty worked over till it fits the proper narrative of here's what you're supposed to believe. Case in point, I'm also including a link to uh, one, an article from Glenn Greenwald from late last week. The headline as the insurrection narrative crumbles. Democrats cling to it more desperately than ever. If the threat of armed insurrectionists and domestic terrorists is as great as some claim, why do they have to keep lying and peddling crude media fictions about it? This is a really well done article. Glenn Greenwald is in no way, shape or form anybody you would ever confuse with being a three percenter or, you know, one of these extremists, a proud boy or anything like that. He's a reporter and a journalist who who calls it pretty straight, and he is calling out much of our mass media as well as members of the political class who are using half-truths and misrepresentations and shading the truth to try to to portray, oh, it was a violent uh, uprising, it was an insurrection, an attempt to overthrow the government back on January 6th. And they just repeat it over and over and over, knowing that it's not their job to have to convince anybody. So much as just wear them down and beat the lie into their brains till that's what people repeat in unison. It was an insurrection. It was right wing white supremacist extremists. I mean, it's it's really crazy to see. And I understand if not everybody sees it that way. I'm I'm reminded, though, that uh, this is something I've been paying pretty close attention to for at least the last 25 years. 
And I'm not saying that I'm completely foolproof, you know, they can't sneak one by me, but uh, let's just say um, suspicion or skepticism in what you're being told from most mass media sources is very well-placed skepticism. And Glenn Greenwald, if you read through this story of his, explains exactly how the the narrative is, is collapsing. One of the big ones, we talked about this a few weeks ago, was the idea that, well, you know, a Capitol Hill police officer was killed by these pro-Trump supporters. And it's been repeated as authoritatively, yes, this is what happened. They beat him to death with a fire extinguisher. And it's only people who are careful and are willing to do some fact-checking. And, and Glenn Greenwald is one of those people, and he backs it up, and he'll show you. This is where I got the information. It didn't happen. Yes, the police officer, Brian Sicknick, Brian Sicknick, he did die. But he did not die because a pro-Trump mob bashed his skull in with a fire extinguisher. That's a pretty important thing, wouldn't you say, since they impeached, you know, a post-president over just exactly that. But the press continues to tell lies about it. There was no evidence that anybody was there to assassinate Mike Pence or Mitt Romney. There's no evidence that they confiscated guns from people coming into the Capitol. No protester brought zip ties with them as if some premeditated plot existed to kidnap members of Congress. Two rioters, however, found them on a table inside. By the way, none of this makes what those protesters did good and acceptable. But it does bring it down out of that uh, hyperbole territory into something that's a little more recognizable with what actually happened. And it's it's just crazy. The the manipulation of opinion and the attempts to, to lead people to just, well, this is the way it is. Why? Because we say that's the way it is. It just can't be good enough. So hopefully you're one of those people willing to look a little bit further. I'm not telling you that, uh, you know, you have to only believe what Glenn Greenwald says. But I think if you give a fair reading to his stuff, you'll see this isn't just opinion. This isn't just something he's making up or, you know, pulling out of his ear. To him, accuracy in reporting matters. And I've seen him do this over and over over the years to the point where um he is less concerned about appearing infallible and more concerned about maintaining his credibility by getting the story right. And if that means that he learns something and has to walk something back and clarify it, well, then he'll do it. He'll issue the clarification. He'll, he'll give the mea culpa if necessary. That's the act of a credible person, not somebody who just BSs you and tells you, and you have to believe this. Don't you dare doubt it. All right, so it's included in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. One final article, and I would encourage you to give this one a special read. It's called The Assault on Our Right to Earn a Living. Ethan Yang has just been knocking it out of the park recently with his essays for the American Institute for Economic Research. And we've all had different reactions you know, to the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the essential versus non-essential uh, businesses. This is one of the best explanations that I have seen of explaining why it is wrong, why it's unacceptable for government to to make this kind of a move and how fundamentally it attacks a person's right to earn a living, which right is protected under the Ninth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Meaning if it's not specifically named in the Constitution as being the purview of the federal government, it's something that's left to the states or to the people respectfully, respectively. 
it's interesting, too, this whole assault on our right to work goes back for roughly 100 years. In fact, uh, Ethan Yang says the assault on our quintessential right to earn a living is a fairly recent innovation dating back to the 20th century and the progressive era, where the notion that the government knew how to run our lives better than we can arose. Since then, he says, the idea that people have an inherent human right to earn a living has gradually eroded to the present day, culminating in horrific fashion with the use of non-essential business closures to combat COVID-19. But Ethan Yang points out here, such a policy was not only an economic disaster, but a spit in the face to hardworking Americans, signaling to them that all men are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Then, in the face of such unconscionable violations of our rights, the courts stood silent with just a few brave judges willing to bang their gavels in favor of defending the intent of the Constitution. And there's a book that he reviews in the course of this essay. It's Timothy Sandifer's book, The Right to Earn a Living, first published back in 2010, but now more relevant than ever. And... Ethan Yang says uh, Sandifer's work describes exactly how we got to this position where our economic rights are no longer rights anymore, but privileges at the mercy of the state and the mob. This is the takeaway. He says the concepts I've chosen to, to cover in this summary barely scratch the surface of the depth of knowledge that Sandifer provides in his book. He expertly outlines and defends the philosophical right to earn a living, which is not only needed from an economic perspective, but a moral one as well. Ethan Yang says economic freedom is intrinsically linked to our humanity as innovative and industrious people. It allows us to do everything from building awesome financial systems capable of moving billions of dollars to intimate cultural experiences, such as purchasing home cooked meals from a local restaurant. The assault on our right to earn a living began over a hundred years ago and has now become the accepted reality today. It is fundamentally rooted in a vision of the world that is not only ignorant of sound economics, but lacks the moral sensibility to recognize the humanity of work. I think one of the things that has driven more people um, literally out of their minds and into despair to the point that many have uh, either considered or have you know, actively sought to take their own lives is rooted in this. Look, I'm, I'm speaking only for the guys when I say this, but uh, a lot of a guy's identity you know, hinges on are you providing? And when they're not, well, let's just say it's uh, it's pretty tough on the psyche. This is The Brian Hyde Show.